Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. Today's episode is the first of four that will be released about the Harcourt Organic Farming Cooperative. Harcourt is just a 10-minute drive north of Castlemaine and is renowned for its orchards, particularly its apples. The small town has about three shops and a service station. In spite of its small size, it has its own family-friendly festival called Apple Fest, which attracts hundreds, if not thousands, of visitors every year. Katie Finlay and her husband Hugh have inherited and run an organic orchard in Harcourt for decades. And as they get older and it becomes clear that none of their own kids want to take on the farm, they have had to do some hard thinking about whether to retire and sell the property or find some other way to manage the property. This episode and the three that follow it are all about where they came to after contemplating that question. The Orchard and Farm is situated right at the foot of Lianganuk, or Mount Alexander, which is a significant mountain on Jara country. The interview with Katie and the editing and airing of this episode all happened on the lands of the Jajarung. I want to express my gratitude and pay respects to their elders and their country. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Salt. 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 Yeah. Salt. 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 Grassroots. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. So you might remember that I've already spoken to Katie about the farm and the developments that have been happening there back in 2018. They were just starting what has now become the Harcourt Organic Farming Cooperative. There were two episodes back in season one of Saltgrass or Turning the Goldfields Green as it was called back then. And you can listen to them at saltgrasspodcast.com or on your podcasting app. In the first episode, I spoke to Katie and a guy called Ant, who had come on board to manage the orchard. And then in the second episode, I spoke to Sass and Mel, who were the gung-ho growers, who were growing vegetables. And generally, I try not to revisit the same people or cover the same topics twice in Saltgrass, unless there's some interesting development or some new aspect of the conversation. In this case, I'm coming back to chat to these people because how they're doing as people and as enterprises is really interesting. Five years on, are the high hopes and idealisms still as shiny and bright? Is it functioning in the way they'd hoped? There are so many beautiful ideas thrown about in the climate space, people dreaming big about how to change the world and how if we could just do things better, the world would not be in such peril. But many beautiful ideas, once they start having to interact with reality, can fail to thrive, shall we say. I've been following the process of this cooperative with interest since it began, not only because I am friends with some of the members, but also because I find it fascinating as a case study of alternative farming and an alternative to the massive monocultural farming which is contributing to climate change rather than helping mitigate it. And it's a beautiful idea that may or may not stand up once it's born into the world and needs to be lived by actual humans through time in a particular place. So for climate context, worldwide, farming is recognised as a pretty big deal. Our modern monoculture, massive scale, mechanised, chemically fertilised and chemically pesticised practices are a capital P problem for many reasons. They create havoc in the natural environment surrounding the farms. But also, according to Project Drawdown, agriculture is one of the biggest carbon emitters. But if we change how we farm food, 
If we regenerate the soils and sequester carbon instead of burning it, farming and food production could actually be an answer to climate change. If you haven't already checked out Project Drawdown, I highly recommend you explore their website or check out their videos. And I do have links in the episode description if you want to find them easily. They have pulled together experts from around the world and have compiled what they claim is the world's leading resource on climate solutions. In a document they have created about agriculture and food production, they say that about a quarter of all carbon emissions worldwide are generated by agriculture and food systems, and this does include food waste. And we'll be covering food waste or organic waste in a future episode about compost, so we will get there as well. But the farming aspect of it is a major part, and this amount of emissions is about equal to the amount produced by energy production, and yet energy production gets all the media coverage and all the people talking about it and farming gets a lot less attention. So it's a very serious amount of greenhouse gases but we all need to eat right. I mean I personally love eating and luckily for us it turns out that farming better may actually be a climate solution. Not just not contributing but actively drawing carbon out of the atmosphere and into our soils. Regenerative agriculture is huge at the moment and I have done an episode on regenerative agriculture. And Project Drawdown does warn that some of the world-saving climate change stopping claims made by regenerative agriculture enthusiasts may not actually stand up if it was put into practice across the world just because of different climates and different soil types and different vegetation types. But there is no denying that regenerative practices are much better for soil, biodiversity and for pollinators. And another layer of this problem of modern agriculture is also the human problem. Big farms run by corporations are buying up land from farming families and removing the capacity for local farming communities to feed their own local area because everything gets trucked out and packaged and processed and then trucked back to the supermarket. So when I say I've been watching this cooperative with interest, these are some of the reasons why. So in November of 2022, I met with Katie on the farm and we sat with a cup of tea under a tree and looked out at the mountain at Lianganok. And around the same time, I also cut up with Mel from Gung Ho, Tessa from the Creamery and the Orchard Keepers. And all of those conversations will appear in the next few episodes. But today we're going to just focus on the conversation I had with Katie because we explore the fundamentals of what this farming experiment is really about and why she as a landowner has chosen to share her land with up-and-coming farmers and some of the complexities of that in a really pragmatic, practical sense. In the background, you're going to hear the noises of a working farm. We've got machinery, dogs barking, a bit of wind sound and lots of birds. We started by reminiscing a little bit about what the farm and co-op was like last time I was there, which was back in 2018. And Ant was only just coming on board to manage the orchard. Sass and Mel were into their second year or so of growing veggies as gung-ho. Katie and Hugh were just starting to step back from the orchard and, and grow their own new enterprises, which is a tree nursery and an educational program called Grow Great Fruit. And Ant has subsequently moved on, and so we sat there and we were just chatting about, you know, whether they were still in touch. The leases are in three, lots of three-year blocks. Yeah. So he finished his first three-year block. Yeah. And then left, and he gave us plenty of notice. We had had plenty of time for changeover. Yeah, we're still in touch with him. Yeah, great. We still love him. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we saw him not long ago. Yeah, great. And so, I mean, 
that's just an example of some of the big changes that have happened here because mm -hmm. Mel and Sass had only just begun with Gung Ho and Tessa wasn't here with the dairy and there's a lot that's it's hard changed. To remember a time when Tess wasn't here. <laughs> and all the cows. <laughs> yeah, the cows weren't here, yeah. We run two businesses, so the Grow Great Fruit Online Teaching. We actually launched that in 2013 and the nursery, we've always grown all our own trees. So pretty much every tree that's planted in the orchard now with just a few exceptions, we grew in the on-farm nursery. And so when we made that transition to the co-op, that morphed into being its own little business, I guess. Can't let go of the trees yeah, yet. Yeah, <laughs> I still wanted to have a part of the co-op where I was actually out in the dirt farming. And so that business is me and my sister Liz and my dad. And he had always kind of been responsible for the nursery. And so it was just a really great way of sort of formalising that. And then with the educational stuff, I've actually done some of your educational things. And that actually was the perfect business model for the pandemic, wasn't it? Because it was. everything's online. You're able to mentor people, have conversations, run classes all online. Absolutely. About yeah. caring for fruit trees. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Called Grow Great Fruit. Yeah. We do, and it works really well. So we used to run workshops here on the farm and for some local community groups as well. We did quite a few for community house and growing abundance and that sort of thing. But we realised that we were just limiting that to people that could physically get here. And so we had already shifted that to online. And it means that we can be working with anyone growing fruit anywhere in Australia. Yeah. Or the but, world. Or the world, yeah, well, that's our, you know, world domination plans. <laughs> <coughs> kind of maybe one day. <laughs> Is fruit growing uh, very different? I mean, Australia has different. It's so many similar. environments. Yep. Like so many climates, so many, you know, Yep. And you can grow fruit trees on pretty much every continent except wow. Antarctica. And <laughs> even then you could on, you know, you could inside, I'm sure. There's just variations in climate and microclimate. So we do all our teaching on basic principles. We teach everything. So when we're talking about pruning we're not talking about a specific type of tree in a specific climate we're talking about how trees will usually respond if you cut them in particular ways and then you can use those principles in any situation and it's the same with soil and you know pest and disease control all those things if you're learning the principles of how those things work then you can apply them anywhere so yeah we've got people all over Australia now and we do a lot of Zoom consults, which sounds kind of bizarre, but it works really well. It's amazing. People just take us into their garden on their yeah. device. I was going to say, they can take them. their phone and yeah. give you a close-up of the tree and what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. And we talk them through the principles the whole way through. And, then, you know, as we're working on maintenance pruning, we'll say, OK, so now we'll look at the next lateral and what do you think we might do with that? And here's some choices. That's right. Cut it there. Yeah. <laughs> And it works incredibly well. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. As long as people have got internet. Yeah. Yeah, the internet can sometimes get a bit dodgy in the garden. It's lovely. We love it. Yeah. And we do we do Zoom Q&A sessions as well, which are really informal. And that's just everybody coming together online and, you know, having a big old Zoom meeting, which everyone is completely familiar with doing now. And it works really well. Yeah. That's great. It is. And then do they get to know each other? Yeah. And start asking each other questions yeah. and bouncing ideas around? Absolutely. And... They visit each other. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. It is. It's really cute. Yeah. yeah. But the other role here, of course, is that you own the land and you invited everyone to run <clears throat> the co-op here and, you know, participate in this grand experiment in farming. 
<laughs> and I think that that gives you a unique perspective on how the whole operation is going and how things are functioning. I think the whole idea started, it's very hard to remember, Ellie, because it's been an incredible octopus. There's nothing linear about yeah. anything that we have done here. So sometimes it's really hard to remember timelines, but I think it started because we were really looking for a succession model. So we knew we were getting to the end of our time where we wanted to actively farm, and that was just like so many other growers. We lost so many orchardists because of the drought. We had 24 or something when we first came home to the farm. Harcourt's always been an orcharding area. Back in the heyday, there were 100, more than 100 small farms growing fruit. And then that has just gradually gone down. There's been, we've got two big corporate orchards in Harcourt that have bought up a lot of those farms over the years. That's not a bad thing, that's just a thing. And in fact, if we didn't have them, we wouldn't have our water system. The fact that we've got big growers means we actually get to maintain irrigation infrastructure. So that's really good. But the drought really did a lot of people in. A lot of people got out of farming at that point. It was really, it was just very hard. People were in debt and, you know, it was hard to maintain staff. There were all sorts of pressures on people. The whole one in a hundred year idea is just completely out the window. We're having extreme events regularly. Yeah. And that is really impactful on farmers. It has long-term consequences. You know, for us, when we lose a fruit tree, I mean, one, you lose one all the time, but when you lose a, an orchard or, you know, a few hundred trees, that has a massive impact because there's such a big long lead time. You've got to decide first, are you going to put trees back in that spot where they've just died from a weather event? Are you going to try and remediate the soil first? There's all those big decisions to make. Anyway. And then it takes two or three years for a tree to become productive at and least. another 10 for it to be big and And we super grow productive. our own trees, so there's at least two years in there of growing the tree. It's not yeah. like we just go out and buy the trees from a nursery. So the whole process is minimum five years before you're starting to pick any fruit from that spot again. So it's a big decision and, and very costly. So after the flood, we came very close to leaving at that point, but we connected with a really great local business consultant, Claire Fountain in Bendigo. She runs a business called Sorted. She's brilliant. So we went in there, we got some funding, actually got some flood funding, went in there to talk to her about our, our exit plan. And our very first meeting with her, that just turned around. She actually tapped into the fact that neither of us were ready to leave. <laughs> and she got us to go away and come to that point, come to that realisation independently of each other. And then she was kind of our witness. It was really a beautiful moment. We both came back into the room and were like, I don't want to stop. So that's, a really, that's an amazing skill, isn't it? Amazing. For her to do that. Absolutely amazing. That's deep work. It really was. And she's not working on that level. She's just a business consultant, you know. She doesn't yeah. want to deal with anyone's emotional stuff. But actually, it was very profound. And so we started that day working with her on a growth plan instead. That's actually when Grow Great Fruit was born. And so we kept working with Claire over the years. So then we got to the point of realising that we didn't want to keep doing this forever. So we worked with Claire about what that might look like. We dabbled with the idea of selling. We have dabbled with the idea of selling the farm many times and it's never completely off the agenda, to be perfectly honest. But we don't want to. We love it. And it would be such a pity for, for it to not be farmland anymore. So she helped us come up with a whole lot of different models for what succession might look like. And then Mel and Sass came into that picture somewhere. They probably even helped inspire the idea of leasing the land out to other people. And then there were other people we met along the way and Tess found us, we didn't find her. And then we found Ant. So, you know, the whole thing sort of evolved 
But working with Claire, we did actually come up with three, I think, three specific models of how we might set it up. And then we chose the one that we've got. And then Claire worked with the whole group on what the co-op would look like. So there's two levels to our structure that stayed the same the whole way through. As landowners, we have a lease, an individual lease with each of the enterprises. And within the lease, there's a whole lot of stuff stipulated. We're very clear on exactly how much land they have access to, what equipment they have access to, the fact that they have to be organically certified. You know, we cover dogs, we cover who has access to land, where, and all that stuff. It's a big legal document, which was big and scary for everybody to sign, but we did that. And then the co-op is how we form community above that. So that, the leases take care of business and then we deal with community. And that structure has stayed the same, but, you know, reflecting back, at the beginning we were probably very idealistic and then we've had to go through all the things that every community has to go to, whether you're a family or a school or whatever organisation. You have to go through learning how to get on with each other. And it can be agonising. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody, you know, everybody that's ever been involved in community knows that. It's really hard. Yeah. People are really messy. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. We could talk about that for hours. It's a whole topic. <laughs> it is. But, yeah, often people, especially idealistic people, have an idea about what they think they should or would like to be able to do. Yes. But the reality of it yep. is sometimes different and it's very hard and that to accept what, that in yourself yes. and in others. Yeah. And that's <laughs> happened to us many times along the way, mm. me included. We've gone into something having a, a set idea of what we were going to do or achieve or what we what was possible. And sometimes we even feel like that has been expressed and agreed on. And then something will challenge it. Or one of us will bring in an idea and say, this is that thing we said we were going to do. And everybody else is like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. That's not what I had in mind at all. And then people's feelings get hurt and they they end up with their vision is shattered. Yeah. yeah. So we've had help a couple of times from the wonderful Dan Palmer, who we miss very much. He worked with us quite a bit and some contacts of his worked with us as well on getting better processes and on understanding each other better. So we moved through that. Some people left, not necessarily because of those issues, but there were issues tangled up with people leaving. And, and then other people have come in. And I think it's been easier with people coming in with us already having been through that stuff and having some processes. It can be as simple as having just good processes at meetings, stuff yeah. like that really helps. Yeah. But also having techniques for listening to each other better and things that we invoke sometimes to remind each other of how to listen to each other over some difficult ideas. That's really important stuff. Yeah, which doesn't mean it's easy all the time at all. It's yeah. still, it's not, you know, there's still difficult things and of course, yeah, of course, that, that just yeah. happens. But, but it's so funny because people would sign up being so enthusiastic to grow things or farm and then half the work is actually... <laughs> half <laughs> the work is emotional. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that is so true. But from that point of view, we do feel a bit more mature as an organisation, more able to weather those sorts of things. I find that so fascinating because actually this model of how to farm and how to produce food for a local community, like... To run a big farm where the boss guy makes all the decisions and he's making decisions based on financial outcomes and productivity, that's a very different business model than getting a whole bunch of people with different ideas and different perspectives, different priorities, 
and a different sense of what it is to be on the land or to care for the land. It's such a different model. Yeah. And there's there's definitely a reason why a lot of people just have the boss who makes all the decisions. It's for much simpler. A, yeah, yeah. It's way easier. But in, within our model, each enterprise makes their own decisions. So we're all basically on the same page and we pretty much are about the way we farm. Like everybody has to be certified organic and we all have the same in, good intentions about farming regeneratively. That's expressed in slightly different ways within different enterprises. But within each enterprise, people actually make their own decisions on how they farm, which is really great. So we don't share any decisions about what goes on in other people's enterprises. So that's good. People have autonomy. How much autonomy they have is one of the issues that we are still grappling with as a co-op. So there's some areas where obviously we don't have autonomy, where we do affect each other, all the things that we talk about and managing the co-op, which is a fire plan. And and also like pest control or weeds or where the cows go. Or yeah. <laughs> like I'm sure Tess has a, like she was telling me the other day that one of her cows broke out and started munching on all the gung-ho greens. <laughs> And obviously that's not meant to happen and that's mistakes like that happen. will happen. Of course they do. Everybody but there will be times when the cows are let into the orchard and, yeah. you know, yeah, cooperative yeah. And kind of... There's those informal connections between people all the time and that flows very naturally. People just have conversations between themselves about how that all works really well because it's natural, you know, it's meant to work that way. For example, in the nursery, which I also run the fruit tree nursery, we get grafting wood from the orchard, obviously. <laughs> because that's where the mature trees are of all the varieties that I want. But I'll just connect in with them and say, I want to get some wood from such and such. Do you care which trees I get it from? And, yeah. you know, have you already pruned some or whatever? Yeah. Those connections, we are one property. So those connections actually just make sense and work really well, almost always. Even when it comes down to infrastructure, there are a few prickly edges around sharing cool room space and stuff like that, but not really. It's all been, mm. that's all been worked out. And I guess water management and things like that. Yes. And market stalls, like the Wednesday farmer's market. Yeah, so I'm not involved in that. Hugh and I, because we're not trading members, that's one of the distinctions we make in the co-op, is that they are all trading members. We don't want to be involved in any of those decisions, so they all work that out. But I'm aware that we've kind of de... What's the word? De-collaborated. It's <laughs> a great word. <laughs> yeah, so Ant in particular was full of ideas. His vision was that we would actually use the co-op, that everybody would sell all their produce to the co-op and the co-op would do all of our marketing. Right. Yeah, so he wanted full collaboration. And very early on it became obvious that they did collaborate to a much higher level than they are now. And that worked quite well. They were selling a lot of stuff together and then they've come back now to just doing completely different stalls at the yeah. at the market and I'm not even really sure why. I just know that that suited some businesses probably just better than others. So Yeah, so they share a market stall, but Tess has her table where she sells the milk and takes her payments and Gung Ho has their table <laughs> and then right, the CSA yes. boxes for the fruit. And I guess then to have the decollaboration allows for that ebb and flow of each business and as years like this happen where the weather has just been so unusual and it's so hard to predict what your crops are going to be, yeah. you can then make those decisions without feeling like you're compromising the rest of Absolutely. the collective. That, and I think that has definitely been one of the issues that's been going on. Yeah, people want independence within their own business and they're all small scale, obviously, but also young 
businesses, like as well as learning how to be in the co-op, they're all still learning their trade. You yeah, know, their businesses are so young. They're all still learning what works and what doesn't, and then every season is different. Yeah. Every season is different, Ellie. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because they're business people. That's one whole layer of activity that they have to do in yes. terms of marketing and being at the market stall to sell things and setting up your finances and being yep. accountable to the tax office, Absolutely. whatever. And then the other layer is actually working the land. And yeah. I mean, that's not like anyone that's running a small business. You've got to wear all the hats and that is really challenging. And again, early on, I was thinking the co-op would be able to provide a lot of those services to people and that we might get savings there. And also that the co-op would provide business training, basically, and, and mentoring. Turns out nobody wanted that, <laughs> <laughs> which is completely fine. I probably had never really checked whether anybody wanted that. I was just full of, you know, this is what, what the co-op could, one of the functions it could serve. But it, it, people really have wanted their independence. It's really important to them to be able to run their own, own independent business and look after everything themselves within yeah. the business. Having said that, we do have a bookkeeper. The co-op does have a bookkeeper, dating from when we were selling together. And she's a fantastic resource for our various co-op members. She's great. So in terms of all of the challenges of working in a co-op and yeah. with you as the landowners leasing it, what are some of the vulnerabilities for you as the landowner, given yeah. that these people are leasing, they're not invested in the land itself? Yeah, so probably the best way of, of talking about that is that as we've gone along, we've discovered there's a few unintended consequences of our model. So the model was only ever set up as nine years and we're halfway, a bit more than halfway through that now. And one of the unintended consequences is that we accidentally created a disincentive for investment in the land. So the orchards that have been lost this year are a really great example. When we were responsible for the orchards, that would have just been our decision, you know, because as I was talking about earlier, when you lose orchard, it's a big investment, it's a big decision, and then it's a big investment to replant them, and then it's at least a five-year wait, at least, you know, before you're starting to get a return. So when you talk about an orchard, you mean a block of trees? A block of trees, yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, we tend to just think of them in blocks. How many orchards would you have on this farm? We've got one, two, three, four, five, basically. And five so on orchards. a really wet, 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 flood-prone, the whole earth is sodden and saturated year, which is very unusual for central Victoria. Yeah, except we've had three in the last decade. Yeah. <laughs> but some of the trees just don't survive it. No, they, that's they right. They get wet feet. and they... That's right. And different types of trees respond in different ways. Yeah. So peaches and nectarines are very prone to a disease called Phytophthora. It's a waterborne root rot. And the Phytophthora thrives in years like this when the soil is just saturated for months at yeah. a time. So yeah, some of the trees succumbed. And when, that's when you might lose a whole orchard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All those trees in an orchard. So in this case, there are several hundred trees we're talking about. So that's a big gap in production. The current lessees, the orchard keepers, they're halfway through their first three-year term. And then if they choose to, they can stay for another three-year term. But we haven't decided what's going to happen after that. We'd really need to resolve what, what the long term looks like. But, you know, they're only making their income from selling the fruit 
we're now making our income from the leases and so it's kind of in nobody's interest. Nobody has the incentive to put the investment into growing new trees. And it's the same with netting orchards. So we had previously netted the cherry orchard. I mean, it's a massive investment. It's $50,000 a hectare minimum. Wow. Huge investment. But over the long term, you make that money back through saved fruit. But, you know, it's too big an investment for a lessee to take on you know, they don't want to invest in something that's on land they don't own. And I guess with Tessa, for example, she can take her cows to a new piece of land. Absolutely. There's a lot of investment for gung-ho to build the soil to make it work really well for veggies, but she can replant somewhere else. But fruit trees, they stay with the they land. Stay, they stay in the, land, <laughs> in, the, in the dirt, that's right. So, yeah, that is a specific issue. I mean, Mel's got similar issues in that to go somewhere else, she would just have to start completely fresh. So Which she is would, huge. It is huge, yes. Yeah, so that was, she would be losing her investment as well. So it does apply for her. And Tess has purposely built all of her infrastructure to be movable and the cows are movable, but it's a big deal. And she's put a lot of work into regenerating the soil here and revegetating. So all of those benefits stay here. And things like kangaroo fencing, it's the same thing. We have actually, as the landowners, we've been investing in that, but we don't get any direct benefit out of, out of that. So... We have the responsibility to do whatever we can to make the land, to protect it for farming, make it as available in the long term for farming as possible because that's what we want to do with our land. But at the same time, this is also our super. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. we're a little bit cautious about investing it in, in ways that we can't realise. So and if, yes, that's I a mean, big disincentive. I guess as landowners, you've got a couple of options. You can continue the leasing program for 20 years into your dotage. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> or you could sell it as a block one day and whoever that is, they might just bulldoze all the trees. Exactly. You know, you can't know whether they're going to value Absolutely. what's here. And there's a good chance that they wouldn't. There's a good chance that the main buyers for a property like this would be lifestyle, people who wanted to move out of the city. And, and grow grapevines or something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> doesn't bear thinking about, does it? And the other unintended consequence is that they committed nine years of their best productive life they're all in their 30s, 40s, you know, yeah. when you should be putting down your roots and starting to build, you know, your long-term future, and they're not. So this romantic idea floats around sometimes that when you're leasing to young farmers like this, they, they can be saving to invest in their own farm. But the reality of that is really hard. It's really hard to make a living and pay yourself, pay all your staff and pay yourself a living wage, let alone be paying super, let alone be saving to buy land. So it's not actually a very realistic idea. So, and it's so much easier when you've got a bit of spare cash to invest it in the business absolutely. and do another plot so that in five years you'll have more money. But absolutely. it's always a future prospect. Yeah, so it's not a good long-term planning thing for them. So we're very conscious of that, that they're not building their futures here at the moment. They're not getting any skin in the game. And at the same time, we still have full responsibility for managing everything. And like the driveway, oh my God, the driveway's just been a nightmare this year. And I've had to borrow a car to come here every time oh, I've done an interview because my little Yaris made it like 20 metres up the driveway and then I just had to stop because it's so eroded because there's been so much rain. Yeah. And I guess because you've got so many people coming up and down now yeah. every day to work here, you've also got so many vehicles. That's right. Yeah, back in the day when it was just us, the driveways eroded plenty of times and Hughes just managed it with our greater blade, you know. But yeah, now we're kind of a public place and there's 20 cars at least a day and so it's much harder on all the infrastructure and we still have complete responsibility for 
making sure everything works all the time and that we provide people with a access and a good workplace. So that's a big responsibility that is still completely on us. So we'd actually quite like to shift some of that to the people that are actually using the land. So there's both of those things. And we'd like to shift, the, you know, we'd like them to have the opportunity to be buying in. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't know how to do that. Yeah. So we applied for a big grant from the World Wildlife Fund. They've got a big regenerative fund and part of that is for regenerative agriculture. So we came in under that tranche and we were incredibly lucky to, to get the grant. So that will give us the funds to actually explore the idea of what do we do next. So everybody acknowledges this is just a short-term plan and we're not making any assumptions about what anyone wants to do next. We don't really know yet ourselves what we want to do next. We've got five kids. They're variously interested and disinterested in coming back to the farm, but under the traditional sort of inheritance model, it's theirs, their stakeholders, you know, they're going to be involved at some point. And then there's the fact that it's not our land anyway. You know, it was stolen land in the first place. So I really want to have that sort of Indigenous voice in our future decision-making as well. And then there's all our farmers who it's their blood, sweat and tears that have got the farm to where it is now and even five years after we started, our biodiversity is better, our soil is better. Tess has been doing so much work on the paddocks, like there's still heaps that we can do, but the property is improving. And in all this time, we have grown a lot of food for a lot of local families. So we really want to keep that going, but we're not assuming that any of these guys even necessarily want to stay. Like we just don't know, we just haven't had those conversations. So at the very beginning of exploring what does the long term look like? Yeah. So this has been a really interesting and mostly successful short term model, which is awesome. But yeah, if we can't solve that long term problem, it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. You know, what we've done so far has just been fun, but it doesn't really mean anything. So we've got to have those big conversations. And so the funding from the World Wildlife <coughs> Fund will allow for those conversations to happen. We'll probably work with somebody. I feel like we need kind of deep chats with everyone by themselves to really get down to what they really want and how they would love to see that happen and then see if they can come up with some options that we can we can have a look at. Yeah. We as landowners at this stage still basically have the say over that, but there's no way we can actually make any decisions without taking everybody else into account. And then we'll also do some work on small farm viability because that's one of the things that we have, not just us, every other small scale regenerative farmer in Australia, I think. It's a struggle, you know, how do you actually make a living doing this stuff on a really small scale? When you give up the scale of, of big corporate agriculture, it's really hard to produce food that you can sell at a price where the farmer makes a decent living wage and the food is still accessible. There's actually a big gap there, so we want to do a piece of work around that. And then we're going to do a whole farm plan. Look at our land capability and what other co-op members we could potentially have here and just to help get some guidance about how we connect with our landscape, how we do all the things that we're doing and regenerate the land itself as quickly as possible, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So great. That all sounds so wonderful. And I love that there's money out there for stuff like that. Oh, so do I. And I love that we don't have to spend this money on consultants we can spend this money on us doing the work. Yeah. Yeah, we can get help where we need too. it. It's a lot of work and it wouldn't happen otherwise. Everybody's yeah. too busy doing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's really awesome that they have recognised that and that's been explicit in the grant that this is to pay us. You just <laughs> never get grants like that, right? <laughs> yeah.
Yeah. yeah, it's been really fantastic. I just wanted to connect the whole farm plan with the long-term vision. The whole farm plan won't necessarily be implemented. <laughs> there's, been, there's been some discussion about that. Like, is it worth doing a plan that says, oh, this orchard should be there and this driveway should be here and we need a new dam there if nobody's ever going to do that stuff. But at the same time, to do that long-term visioning about what is possible in the long term for the property, mm. we need that plan to base it on. They're interrelated. Yeah, and what do you see as potential other producers who could move on to the land? Yeah, so flowers would be awesome. Other small horticultural things. Herb growing for teas. Absolutely, herb growing for teas. Bees is another one. And we did have interest early on from a couple of potential beekeepers, actually. So that's something else that would fit quite well. You know, we've got a couple of empty orchards at the moment. Even just more cherries, potentially, like more fruit would be another possibility. Would you ever divide up the orchard and have two sets of orchard keepers or would it be... Potentially. Yeah. We're open to anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's certainly a possibility. We've got the little bush food patch now. There's heaps of room for that to be expanded, but that's up to Murnong Mummers and those guys that are running it. So a chicken farmer. Oh, of course, chickens. Through the, through the <laughs> orchards. That's your I- permaculture ideal, isn't it, to yeah. have chickens through your orchards? Chickens or ducks or, <laughs> yeah, other, other poultry. Ant toyed around with that for a while, having, he had ducks and chooks that he had through the orchard, but he was running the orchard by himself. He just didn't have time to do everything. He was, you know, literally running yep. <laughs> a lot of the time. To, yeah. But, yeah, that would be another great enterprise because it goes really well with cows as well. Chickens can follow cows. Ah. Oh. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Worms, worm farm, like worm farming on a scale. So we're really open to lots of other things. I mean, potentially doing more re-veg, doing some wood as well. Yeah, okay, so growing some eucalypt for timber, that sort of thing. Potentially, yeah. Mm. Lots of ideas. Lots of ideas, we're very open to them. There's been so much work in getting the co-op up and running and everybody working well together. It hasn't felt like the right time to bring new people in. We had quite a lot of inquiries at the beginning from potential new people and so we've chatted to lots of people about different ideas and then we always say go away and do a business plan and come back to us and they always don't. (laughs) Which is really good because people have these really romantic ideas about how much they would love to grow whatever. Which is fantastic that people are interested in doing it but as soon as it becomes business you've got to get real about can you make a living? Because if you can't, if you have to support your food growing with a job elsewhere then it's just an expensive hobby really yeah which is not I don't want to be disparaging that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing but it makes it much harder to sustain it in the long term and I think after talking to the orchard keepers there's six of them now as opposed to one ant yep (laughs) and they all have other jobs and so collectively amongst them they've got enough manpower here to make it a business but they've also got some financial security elsewhere yeah and Um, even then they still struggle to have enough production hours on the farm yeah yeah that's the dilemma then once you're working off farm we used to have to do that as well at times there were years when we worked off farm too even in a bad year there's not that much less work yeah you still got to prune everything yeah Yeah. and disaster management when it's a bad year yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah there's lots lots of work still I don't know that many farmers but the farmers that I do know if they're just a couple who are running a farm one of them will be working off the farm and the other one will be the primary farmer and I think that's not uncommon. Yeah, When it was Hugh and I running the orchard we both were full-time in the orchard basically but not all year. We were both full-time over summer and then in winter I was the main pruner so Hugh had time to be doing other stuff then. Sure. Yeah. But then you need work that you can dip in and out of. 
Yes, that's <laughs> you know, right. and that's not always easy to find. No, yeah, no. Well, we're lucky. We're, Hugh's always had that sort of work. Yeah, good. Works as an editor. Oh, great. Online editor. Have you made connections with other people who might be doing similar things, trying to set up similar ways of enabling young farmers to get yeah. their feet on the soil? There's a huge amount of energy around this topic at the moment. We've just recently connected with some landowners at Red Hill who are doing something really similar. It's a slightly different model, but they've got a big farm. They're running beef, I think, and they've and now they've got a, some egg people and a flower farmer and I think a beekeeper. There's a, there's a third one that's just coming on as well. They're just getting set up. They found us. So we've had a couple of fantastic conversations with them. Yeah, where we can just talk at that level, just as the, as the landowners, because we have specific issues that we're grappling with that we don't want to bring into the co-op. That's nothing to do with them, really. It's about us and our family and our situation and our future. Yeah, so it's really, it's really good to be able to talk to other people at that level. When you say it's a big topic, are there globally or across Australia, are you seeing more and more people? Yeah, so when we set up the co-op, it was all about co-ops. Everybody was talking about co-ops. And now everybody's talking about farming on other people's land, but that's probably just the bubbles I move in. So AFSA, the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance, they've got a subcommittee called FUPL, which is farming on other people's land, which I'm on. And so they're actually trying to set up some guidelines to help people that are considering setting up these sorts of arrangements think about things like leases and all the hard-headed stuff that you actually have to think about to go into those sorts of arrangements yeah and there's just been various discussions and forums and it's just the vibe at the moment is that a lot of people are trying to solve these two problems of landowners with land they're not using or aging farmers and this whole younger generation of farmers that want to be farming and don't have access to land because land is just getting ridiculously unaffordable. Mm. So a couple of other people working in this space are Grounded. It's a new CLT advocacy organisation. So CLT is Community Land Trust. So that's much more about affordable housing, but is also potentially a model that we might look at for our long-term future. Grounded is a great name. It's a really good name, isn't it? Yeah. I always appreciate a good name. <laughs> they just had their launch and it, it is really one of the ways that we could maybe go forward here so when we do our future planning with the world wildlife fund we're going to start by looking at every model we can find really around the world for how people are land sharing that's the point really is how you bring people together how you make it affordable for people to access farmland in a sustainable way So there you go. That was Katie Finlay about the Harcourt Organic Farming Cooperative. Links and notes related to the conversation are on the episode page on the website and also in your podcasting app. Stay tuned for the next few episodes, which explore how each of the co-op members are going and why they signed up and what unique challenges and benefits each gets from being part of the farm and part of the cooperative. For those of you listening on the radio, please note that you can listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your preferred podcasting app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. You can follow us on all the socials and you can subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. 
This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Ali Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt, salt, of the earth, people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.